hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I hope we haven't forgotten what the reason of the season is. It is the sweetest name, Jesus. By the way, um, for our presentations this year, we don't have tickets. Your ticket is by way of registration, so please note that online. You can find us at our website and there register, register for whichever special service that you would like to be part of. Um, we'll be making certain to practice all Durham Health Protocols during our services, so take note of that. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now as we turn our attention toward your word that you would um, instruct us and encourage us. Thank you that your word is both. It, it instructs and encourages, and Lord, um, this section today does just that. We pray, Father, that our hearts and minds may uh, be clear and focused on, on what you have for us and that, uh, Lord God, you would be pleased to honor yourself through your word and take this time and apply it to our lives in, uh, in these days, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I think there's a, a critical question that always has to be asked and certainly um, a question that's critical for our time today. As you're finding your way to Micah chapter 5, which is where we will settle this morning, there is an important question, and that is this, is Jesus the way or is Jesus in the way? Quite honestly and quite frankly, whether uh, as we look down through the annals of human history, that question is decided by people, and it shapes and frames the way they behave, the way they live. Jesus is either the way or Jesus is in the way. And before the time of Messiah, it's God is the way or God is in the way. And the book of Micah, the prophecy of Micah brings our awareness or brings our attention to this in a, in a, a particularly uh, clear way. It's the ongoing story of human history that is sort of wrapped up again in one of these prophecies and the prophet Micah delivers it to us. God is either an inconvenience or God is everything. And there's not really a room for a third or a, a different variation to that. And so what you have in the, in the, in the prophecies that uh, lead us to the manger, that lead us to Messiah, you have these descriptions of tragic times that God's people are, are living in. And, and this particular time, Micah is a, um, a contemporary of Isaiah, a little, little bit later than him, but the political situation, the religious situation, the physical situation was, and, and um, national situation was very similar. And the, the people had not changed on, in spite of Isaiah and other prophecies that had been delivered to them. And so really the, the, the prophecy of Micah is, a, is, a, is God's sort of shock treatment, shock tactic on people to bring them to an awareness that, that the distress that's around them is, is as a result of them rejecting and ignoring God. At the same time, uh, chapter 5 in Micah is this small section 
hope-filled reprieve from all, all that's going on. In fact, um, one commentator in describing what God does in his work through the prophets says that God mocks unbelievers in love. You need to think about that a little bit. But God is entirely loving, but he expresses it through the prophets um, the, the serious um, mindlessness of the way they're living in light of the fact that there's an eternal and great powerful God. And it, it really, you know, as we think about this, as we read this prophecy and we think about our, the times that we live in ourselves, it's really mystifying to us, I think, the lengths that people will go to um, in, in terms of their fear of dying but have no intention of considering the least little inconvenient thing in their life in terms of seeking out an eternal God and eternal salvation, the, the solution to their great fear. And, and so throughout Scripture, you have prophets of old that are, that are boldly proclaiming to people, why is it that you, you act as if God is in the way as opposed to God being the way? And and, and there's a continual and a constant um, picture uh, throughout history how this slide into uh, ultimately God's judgment begins and, and, and how it sh- takes shape. And if you, if you study it, you will realize that, that we are living in the, the uh, example of that very same slide. It always begins, first of all, with religious leadership that know the truth, but start to doubt it, compromise it, Um, somehow they begin to marginalize it, marginalize the application of it, find it an inconvenience. And when that happens at the religious leadership level, then you you all know what happens next. The people themselves, and the scriptures tell us this, the people in the absence of Confident revelation, the proclamation confidently delivered, cast off all restraint. Some of you know that the verse says, where there is no vision, the people perish. But it really is where there is no revelation, where there is no confident proclamation of the truth, the people cast off restraint. And once the people, cast, once the people start to cast off restraint, the government of whatever nation that is, will step in and complete the job of marginalizing or eliminating God from the public square. It always takes that form. Religious leaders first start to doubt and compromise. The people cast off restraint because of the religious leadership and government steps in to finalize not only the marginalizing of God, but the elimination of God in the public square. I would submit to you that Canada is a long way down that journey. Long ago, did our religious leaders start to lose confidence and boldness in the proclamation of God's truth and began to compromise it. The people have cast off restraint in terms of their behavior and lifestyle. And now you're seeing the government step in and take the final steps to completely eliminating God from the public marketplace. So what we have in the midst of 
of our reality and their reality in, in, the, in the prophecy of Micah is this outstanding prophecy of hope. And that's what I want to draw your attention to this morning. Um, I want to read the text and then we'll make some commentary. I'm looking at Micah chapter 5, and I'm going to look at verses 1 to 5, and we're going to look at a few other verses this morning as well as time permits, but we begin here. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Now, keep in mind that this prophecy, this point in prophecy, leaps out of of an emotional moment in the history of Israel that could be perhaps summarized best in chapter 3, verse 12. Listen, therefore, because of you... Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Now, imagine yourself being of Israel back 700 years before, 2,700 years ago, and you're hearing a prophecy that states that the visible presence of God on this earth is about to be plowed like a field. It's going to become a heap of rubble, okay? Gather yourself. It would be like a declaration stated in our country today. Canada, or sorry, the Church of Canada will be plowed like a field The Church of Canada will become a heap of rubble. In other words, the visible presence, we talked about this last week, the body of Christ, the church, is the visible representation of the presence of Jesus Christ on this earth. This prophecy is stating the visible presence of the Almighty God is going to be plowed under and become a rubble heap, a heap of rubble, the Temple Hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. That's epitomizing the nature of this moment for them. We haven't heard that we're there yet. In fact, I'm going to share with you later. I don't believe we'll get there because of the promise Jesus made to us, but hear hear us out here. So what we have here is a scenario that God has, has determined he's had enough. Judgment is coming. You see... Life comes down to you either replace yourself with God or you replace God with yourself. That's how life unfolds for everyone. You either come to the place where you replace self with God or you replace God with self. 
And the more things change, the more they remain exactly the same. You read through this, this prophecy and you realize that the judges had failed to render justice. The prophets had failed to speak a true word of God. The rulers had failed to rule and society was in chaos and great unrest. And that's what you have before us. In fact, in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, we get a little feel of what's going on here. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a, a fellow man of his inheritance. You, you have all kinds of... Um, Chaos taking place at this particular time. Plotting the seizing of property. Um, planning iniquity. Going to bed at night, planning the iniquity of the next day. And then you have, um, as you look at the state of affairs, um, in Micah chapter 1 verse 8, you have weeping and mourning and, and a very, very difficult time to live. Because of this, it says in verse 8, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like a, an owl, for her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. And then in the next several verses, it talks about the collateral damage to all of the small towns. You know, Jerusalem was the be-all and end-all. I mean, it was the, that was the place, the, the, the place of worship, the place of, of the visible presence of God. And, 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 and when it's crumbling, when it's falling, when it's being, um, when, 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 uh, it's being attacked, you know that the collateral damage of the, the small and the the poor and the weak and the, the, the outcast little towns are going to feel the blow the most. And that's what always happens when, when evil and wickedness comes upon a nation. The, the poor and the, the, those who are weaker and those without strength and those without support and those without big support systems are, are the first to, to feel the great pain and, 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 and suffering of that. And so God is expressing to them Look around you. Look at what's happening. Look at what is going to be happening. Do you have no heart? Are you unaware of how things are? And so you have this, this description of the damage when God is treated as if he's in the way of our living. And the remnant righteous are being squeezed to the very margins of life. Little towns being crushed. The overthrow of the Zion being plotted. And so as we, as we see this statement, we wonder, well, surely things will change, you know? Uh, surely leaders over Israel will have a different, uh, a, a, a change of heart. So we fast forward 700 years and we come to that moment when the Messiah that's promised here in the Micah text is actually born. In Matthew chapter 2, we have this great scene of, of the three wise men who have traveled from afar to, to, to find this promised one from the book of Micah. And by the way, the three wise men were not at the nativity. So all of you have set up your nativity scene. Take your three wise men and put them at the other end of your house. They're on the way, but they're not quite there yet. 
just for historic accuracy. But, it, you know, in, in, and I won't take a lot of time in Matthew 2 because that's going to be part of our series. But in Matthew 2, King Herod, 700 years after this text says, so um, he's very alarmed. The fulfillment of, by the way, this, this Micah text sets off a political firestorm. And, and to the three wise men, Herod comes to them and says, what do you mean when they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? You mean I'm being replaced? No, 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 no. No, I'm not going to let that happen. There's no possible way. I'm not recognizing another, another king. It's king me. I replaced God a long time ago in my life. I'm the king. And I'm not going to accept another, another, and you know the story, as he goes on to slaughter or, or order the slaughtering of all the little, children, all, all the little boys under two years old uh, born in Bethlehem. Tragic, um, unbelievable, unbelievable carnage. This is the leadership that you had in Micah's time, that you have 700 years later, and, and God forbid, but we've watched around the world this same kind of leadership, same kind of despots and tyrants being raised up as leaders over oppressing people and killing and murdering people for their, to, to, to feather their own nest, to increase the size of their own bank accounts. And finally, we fast forward to the church itself, where in, in John 16, John prophesies that there are coming days when that are so twisted that people will kill the righteous and think that they are doing God a favor. And that began. It started with Saul of Tarsus, who believed he was doing God a favor by killing Christians. And there have been those who've raised up and religious leaders who've been raised up over all these years who have, been, who have had that same spirit there are religions among the great religions of our, of our world who believe they are doing God a favor by killing Christians. Christians are the most martyred people in all the world every single day. And so in Micah, the prophecy goes out in Micah chapter 4 verse 9, why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? In all of this, in all of this distress and the, the, how you, what God has been saying to you and you're crying out loud and you haven't even considered turning your attention heavenward, do you not have a king in heaven? Do you not have a counselor, a divine perfect counselor to help you. In Isaiah, you get the same thing in Isaiah 40, 27. Why are you wondering, he calls out to God's people, why are you wondering if God doesn't see your way or disregards your rights? Do you think God doesn't know what's going on in your situation? Do you think he doesn't know when your rights are being violated? Do you think he doesn't know when your way is being is, is difficult. 
into the midst of this, the prophet gives great courage when in Micah chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, he says, I will surely, he says, this is, this is God's message to you, to the faithful through fa- in faithless times, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord at their head. In chapter 4, verses 6 and 8, more encouragement. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day forever. As for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem and this is is how it will take place. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is how it will happen. How long will God's people face disgrace? Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, and be struck on the cheek. How long will God's faithful people be uh, brought under struggle and strain and distress? How will this glorious promise take place? This glorious rescue and reign come to pass? Now keep in mind, when all of this is happening and what, regardless of what nations are doing and what, what wicked leadership is doing, God has plans and God has purposes. God has big plans. These plans that were put in place or stated here by at least the prophet were 700 years before Messiah came. 700 years. So in answer to our questions about how long, O oh Lord, there may be long spans of time. We long for the Lord to return today but he may not. So what is the promise here that we bank all of our confidence in? It's the fulfillment of Messiah, the promise made in this this chapter of Micah. A ruler over Israel will be born. That was the promise. And we all know, sitting here today, that 2,000 years ago, that promise was fulfilled. We know that. And so we have the advantage of that. But the description here is a a forever throne. A throne, his greatness for then, his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. This will be a forever um, one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times, a a throne established forever. And that promise began in the Garden of Eden at Genesis 3.15. It is tracked all the way through the scriptures. It shows up in 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verse 16, where David, King David, has made a promise that his his line will never fail to occupy the throne uh, forever. An an, an incredible promise. But here's here's what caught them off guard. The promise is that this grand event, this this longed-for rescue will take place in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are 
small among the clans of Jews, though you are literally insignificant. You know, I was thinking, it should have been Jerusalem. That's, that's where you, you know, when you, when you want to showcase something great of God, you showcase it in Jerusalem. God decides, no, I'm going to showcase it five miles south of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethlehem, Ephrathah. By the way, that's an ancient name, Ephrath. That was its original name. You can see that in Genesis 48. Ephrath, which meant fruitful. But, but any of you who know anything about Bethlehem is even today it's a very small place and then it was an even more insignificant and small place. And so God, for, for the grandest of assignments, regularly chooses the smallest of places or the smallest of people. That's how God operates. And we all know why. So that the place or the people can't brag. The only reason that, that these things take place is because of God and his greatness and what he does and what he has done and what he will continue to do. For those of you who remember church or, or Bible, biblical history about Bethlehem, Bethlehem was the place where, where Rachel died uh, giving birth to Benjamin. It was a place of sorrow. And now the prophet says the place of sorrow is going to become the place of great joy it's also the place of Ruth, where Ruth said, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Where you stay, I will stay. It's a place of, of commitment, a place of promise. It's also the town of David, the greatest of all Israel's kings until Messiah. And Messiah is the glorious and greatest king. And then it, it, it follows along with the other prophecies. In, in verse 3, it talks about the this will be a, this, you know, this ruler over Israel, although Israel will be abandoned until, for a while, until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, will be a woman, will give birth. It's an ongoing theme of the prophets, a virgin, according to Isaiah. A child will be born, a son will be given. This is a continual promise through the scriptures. And he will be from ancient times, it says in the text, or literally from days of eternity on. In other words, this is no mere human. This is someone who has existed from eternity past on. That's the promise. The only rightful monarch, the only one who could be born king is the one who already is king of the universe. He's not made a king or inherited the kingship, but rather is the king and it says an interesting thing here. Notice in verse 3, and the rest of his brothers returned to join Israelites. This would be a phenomenal prophecy. At the time, there was, a, there was great disunity. The northern tribes had separated from Judah. There was constant enmity between the two. The, the, the idea that, that there was coming a, a, a time when there would be reunification of, of the tribalism that was now existing in Israel would, was all, all virtually unthinkable at the time. And this was a promise that, that this one would, would not only redeem but would, would unify the people of God. We've experienced that. We continue to experience that. We see what God is doing in, through Jesus Christ. He is bringing people from every flavor together under one banner called the Church of Jesus Christ. Did this reunification begin at Pentecost? Is it now repatriation that is taking place in these last days? 
hard to, to know exactly what, we're t- what the prophet was talking about here, but we do know that the righteous come together in unity. An entirely different monarchy is being described here. Like nothing ever seen before among mankind. There's a cycle that happens and has happened through all of the great civilizations. Nations are raised to power. They become proud. And then they become sinful. And then they collapse. That's the ongoing track record of history. Nation after nation, leader after leader, raised up, pride, sinfulness, collapse. But not this leader, not this kingdom. This one will be entirely different. These days, while all of our eyes are focused on the virus, we are seeing this cycle take place in our own country. We are seeing the disestablishment of the church on purpose. We are watching our governments marginalize the visible presence of Jesus Christ on this earth so that any memory of the righteousness of God can be removed from our country. Bills like Bill C-6 and Bill C-7 are direct acts of our government to marginalize and disestablish the church. C6 is the, is the bill to, to make it impossible for churches to speak against sexual immorality. Bill C7 is to grant broader, uh, a broader range for seniors to commit suicide. That's what we're seeing played out before us. In our call to be light and salt, to call out our country to embrace Jesus Christ and to shine light, the light of his truth on the wayward ways of our country. The Bible tells us that righteousness exalts a country, but sin is the disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14, verse 34 But the truth of this prophecy tells us this, that Messiah assures all of us that it won't be the visible presence of Jesus that goes away because Christ himself has promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not, cannot prevail against it. That is a forever fixture of this universe. But human nations and godless leaders and belligerent states will be removed. And the greatest reset is not the one that the politicians are talking about. The greatest reset that is coming is going to be a reversal of fortunes. The nations of this world will be replaced by the God they've tried to replace. That's the promise to us. The great news of Jesus is upon us and is upon this statement. And as we transition ourselves into the, the Lord's table, as we transition our time to gather around the Lord's table and to thank Him for what He's done for us, we would be missing a a gigantic part of this description of Messiah prophesied here in Micah 5 if we ignore verse 4. Do you see what it says there? The description of this coming king, he will stand, this coming ruler, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This will be a shepherd king and not an unrighteous flock fleecing tyrant. It's 
It's John in his gospel, in John 14, who picks up so uh, wonderfully the description that Jesus himself gives when he um, expands the, um, or, or, or clarifies the metaphor of the shepherd and its relationship to this great ruler that is promised to us by the prophecy in Micah. It's John who who captures the words of Jesus when Jesus says in John chapter uh, 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There are a couple of descriptions here that is important for us, that Jesus is this grand ruler promised to us And the description of his kind of rulership, his kind of leadership, is a shepherd king. Now, verse 3 tells us it will be a while that God's people will be abandoned and under judgment, 700 years in fact. Judgment is a long and painful object lesson of what sinfulness delivers. In fact, my understanding of hell is it's an eternal object lesson of what, uh, actually it's an eternal object lesson to the faithful uh, for all eternity. A constant eternal reminder of what turning your back on God results in. Judgment has always been an object lesson by God to get the attention of the righteous. And so we have this aura and era of judgment that that the prophets declare, but then we have this shepherd king who comes along and says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. What? What kind of a king are you? You're going to lay down your life? Yes. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. We're looking here at this before time itself, the Godhead had planned our rescue, our redemption, and it entailed the Son of God himself agreeing to take the responsibility to be our substitute, to be to die for us vicariously, to die in our place, to die for us. That's what the great text is, states to us here. In, in Acts chapter 2, there's a powerful statement that is made. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. This man, meaning Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. This was the plan of God all along, to lay down his life for us. The Father gave his son for you and for me, and we're going to celebrate that with thanksgiving, what God has done for us in a few moments. But in describing himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, He also states in verse 14, John 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. This this is an entirely different kind of leadership than, than anything the world has ever, ever witnessed before. A king who knows 
every one of his subjects intimately. I, I don't know if you thought about the, the nature or the reality of that for you. This is the, uh, a ruler who knows you intimately, not like historic tyrants who, who sacrifice the masses to increase their own personal wealth and power, laying up at at night uh, thinking about how they can seize and confiscate the properties of their subjects, how they can go about and, 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 and seize power by force. No, this is a shepherd king who knows you intimately, who knows you by name. You realize to your Canadian government, you're just a social insurance number. You're one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's that's who you are. That's who I am. That's all we are. But not to this king, not to this ruler. He knows you by name. He knows you intimately. He knows everything about you. And it says, and we know him. In his decisions on how to lead and how to provide and how to protect, he's not thinking of us as just some sort of mass concept community. He thinks about us individually, our own hurts, our own needs, our own desires, our own dreams, our own hopes. That's who he is. That's who he is. Jesus knows you by name. So... Because of this great truth and the fulfillment of this prophecy, in spite of the fact that it took a long time, and here we are 2,000 years later, waiting for the promised return of Jesus. It's a long time. Our hope is not based on the when of anything, but rather our hope is based on the certainty of what will happen. And the powerful truth to you and me today with respect to the prophecy of Micah 5 is that what God prophesies happens. And everything God says and everything God promises us happens and will happen. God, if you read God's proclamations in Scripture, He always talks about, I will do this. Not I might do this. I hope to get around to this. I hope everything works out. I hope, I hope circumstances come together so I can make this happen. God, God never talks that way, ever. I will do this because I have laid down my life for you and I know you. I laid down my life for you, not a generic term, you get to insert your name in there. I laid down my life for Steve, Rick, Tom, Sally, Mary. And I know every one of you. God is the bringer and giver of hope because he knows and importantly controls the future, your future. God planned the future, God plans the future and reshapes the political landscape as he sees fit, not us. So let me transition with the question all over again. 
to you here this morning, to you online. Is Jesus the way or is he in the way? There are no third questions. There's no sort of questions, no, no alternative. The simple truth is this. If Jesus is in the way of your life, then you have no way to the Father because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. But to those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God known by name. So if you don't know him today, he has made himself known to you through his word right now and through the Holy Spirit, even this moment. Won't you respond to him? Won't you receive him? Won't you receive Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life for you? Father, I pray this morning and thank you for the truth of your word. I pray now and thank you for the privilege it is to be on the other side of the cross and to know that you have died for us. Christ has rose, risen again. He has brought us into his family through this great act of sacrifice on our behalf, being our substitute. And so, Lord, by faith, we thank you for salvation that has been given to us. And we pray now that you would receive our thanksgiving in this gathering together at the Lord's table. Please receive our thanksgiving from hearts that are truly grateful that the ruler has come, that he is ruling and reigning over the universe, that he is a shepherd king, that he died for us and that he knows us intimately and that his proclamations are always fulfilled and will come true. And so, Lord, we look for our soon coming king. It may be soon, it may be long, but we know for certain that Jesus Christ is coming again to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.